my fellow geoscience aficionados, you are listening to Nice Chats on the Geology Podcast Network. I'm Dr. B, and in each episode I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of natural problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we'll have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geosciences, I, with the help of our guests and occasional co-hosts, will take care of fitting all the information that you need in a casual and fun environment. Today we're starting what we are calling the Rebecca Trilogy. Over the next three episodes, we are coincidentally interviewing three Rebeccas about fields in geosciences that are completely different from each other. We'll start by chatting with Dr. Rebecca Paisley about the role of exploration and mineral resources in ensuring a sustainable future, especially in regards to energy. It is common to view mining as the dark side of the forest for geoscientists, but what is sometimes hard to realize is that mineral exploration plays a huge role in the energy revolution. Things aren't always black and white, sometimes they are 50 shades of grey. FYI, I just stole this joke from a recent presentation from Professor Martin van Kranendalk. Rebecca is an exploration geochemist from Cornish Lithium in the UK, and we are very excited to talk to her today. Hey Rebecca, nice to meet you and welcome to Nice Chats. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk. Um, so you told us that you did your PhD at McGill, is that right? I did, yes. I was there 2014 and then graduated 2019. Okay, so I actually visited um, UCAM in Montreal in 2015. Oh, okay. I was probably uh, in the building at the time. Yeah, so I was doing ID teams for my master's. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and I, I actually spent time with uh, Karen Siegel. I don't know if you know her. She was also from McGill. Oh, Karen. Yeah, no, I do know Karen. Yeah, she was actually the one that showed me how to do samadhi neodymium chromatography. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, but we would always use the instructions that uh, Peter Crockford put together because they were excellent. <laughs> very decent. I do know Peter as well, and he is a very, very smart man. Um, and then also at the time that, uh, that I was there, I also knew at McGill um, Nicola Gaia. Yeah. That entire, yeah, no, they're all in one office at one point. Okay, yeah, there you go. He was doing his PhD there too. And, uh, but, but we actually had met before uh, because I went to France for undergrad, like a, an Erasmus program, something like that. And, uh, and he was studying at the same school where I went to. So I actually knew him from even before. And, uh, you know, this is just a funny example of how small the world of geology really is, you know. Oh, 100%. You'll always, it's not even six degrees of separation, it's like 2.5 at best. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny because, you know, we didn't really know you before. You know, we just saw your post on the GMPV blog and, uh, and we thought like, oh, it, it would be nice to interview you. And, um, and then when I, you know, had a look at your CV and stuff, then I started to find all these like, you know, people we know in common. And so, yeah, it's very funny. Yeah, all, all learning new things about rocks all the time um so i don't know how many episodes of nice chat um you have listened to before but 
we always like to kick things off with a game. Today we'll play a game that was featured on our very first episode, and it's a game called Rapid Fire. So, yeah, in this game, I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and you just answer as quickly as you can. It's like that uh, episode of Friends when Joey is trying to decide if he should take the northern route or the southern route to go to Vegas. Right, so these are uh, somewhat controversial topics in geosciences. Oh. Okay. I will give you two options, and they are either the same thing or they're slightly different. Okay. And although sometimes you have to be careful about using them interchangeably, people freak out way too much about the misuse of one or the other. Okay. In some cases, they have the same meaning, but despite of that, you just pick your favorite one for whatever reason, and you hate everyone on the other side of the wall. Okay, I can, I can sign up to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now I want you to relax, take a deep breath, clear your mind. Metamorphic grade or facies? Metamorphic grade. Oof, man. Do you want me to leave now? Should I exit now? <laughs> <laughs> There is a lot of people that uh, really prefer to use facies, you know. I'm an igneous petrologist at best. Metamorphic rocks is like, why would you cook them? What's the point? <laughs> <laughs> They're already done. They're already gone. <laughs> okay. Uh, standard or reference material? What about standard reference material? That's the technical. Like, you should be using ah, them to convert. Ah. Yeah, you see, you, you just won my heart because this is one, you know, I'm making fun of people for giving these things too much importance on the on the intro but this is one that you know strikes close to me because i hate when people misuse standard and reference material yeah i use standard in like colloquial terms because uh, like the non-geologists in the team will understand when i'm like i need more standards but yeah i guess it's yeah. standard reference material srm isn't that what what we should all be using <laughs> okay Next one is volcanic massive sulfide or volcanic hosted massive sulfide? I'd say volcanic massive sulfide, but I can see where the other side is coming from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, this, this one is, um, is something I struggle with so much because um, my, my PhD was in, was in VHMS and, uh, and I'm actually trying to to write a project uh, for future research on that. And I just don't really care that much about like, you know, <laughs> one or the other is like, we all know what we mean. It's not that important, you know, but anyway, I might get some uh, blowback on this one. Next one, strike or trend? Strike. Sulfides with pH or F? Oh, <laughs> I will die on the hill of sulfide should be spelt with pH. But I know that technically it's been changed and it should be spelled with an F. Yeah, you see, the problem I've had is that um, I wrote my thesis in Australia using, you know, the British spelling. And, um, and then I published one of the chapters in a, in a journal that said, no, you have to use F because that's the international convention. And um, so basically my paper, the paper I published doesn't match the chapter on my thesis because you had to control f yeah i had to edit everything into a different you know different spell my toes are curling just at like people spelling it with <laughs> f 
I have very strong opinions on it. <laughs> oh, you see, that's what I, that's exactly what I mean. Like for whatever reason, you have very strong opinion on that, and it's like okay, like <laughs> you know, <laughs> Pluton or Batlit. Oh, um, I would always traditionally use Pluton, but now I'm working for Cornish Lithium, and it's a giant Batlith under the county, and so now I've started using Batlith a lot more. If someone came up to me and was like, let's talk about this Pluton, and, and then I'm not going to turn around and be like, leave until you come back and say that. <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> uh, Monica or Rachel? Monica. Okay. That, this one is just a callback to the first friends joke. <laughs> I'm more of a Monica than a Rachel, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I know you guys wish we could just keep making friends jokes, but... I assure you that what's coming up next is even better. Me and Rebecca had an amazing chat and I can't wait for you to hear it. If you have ideas for future episodes or guests, please write to our email nicechats at gmail.com. We would really like to hear from you. You can also follow us and message us on our social media pages, which are listed also in the notes. Please subscribe to Nice Chats with me, Dr. B, and tell your friends about the show. If you like our podcast, then please give us a five-star review. The mining industry suffers from bad public reputation, and in some cases, you know, rightfully so, but what very few people realize is that it actually plays a fundamental role in renewable energy future. Uh, what role is that exactly? Um, no, you're right. I think, I think there is still a negative perception of mining, as you said, for some, some very valid reasons. Um, but, it, it, I mean, it is, like you said, it is really fundamental to the future for so many reasons. You know, first of all, we have this climate crisis going on and this low carbon transition um, to producing trying to produce energy from renewable source resources um everyone you know i i don't think i've met many people who are anti wind turbine or anti solar panel or anti green energy but i think there is a there's a fundamental gap in um or disconnect in in people's understanding of where their stuff comes from um not just wind turbines but things in general um and there's a great phrase of if it wasn't grown it must have been mined and that really hits the nail on the head of if if you everything you touch if you think about everything you touch if it hasn't grown on a tree the chances are it's come out of the ground well it has to have come out of the ground and that starts with the mineral exploration industry and the mining industry um and and that that is you know the fundamental role is we provide the raw materials to make everything that people use. You, it's not just your wind turbines, your electric vehicles. It, it's, you know, your toothpaste and your bowls that you use for your breakfast and your mugs. Like, mugs do not grow on trees. That's, like, often made of ceramic and that's material that's come out of the ground. And um, so, yeah, that that disconnect in people's understanding of how supply chains work, I think, is... Um, People don't understand why we need mining, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And then, as you said, added on top of that, 
but it's been you know bad press um the mining industry does not help itself in some cases um recent events in australia being a prime example of that um and also the industry oh in brazil too actually in my region yeah um and you know i think everyone in the you know everyone in the mining industry who who is trying to make a positive difference when they see those headlines is just like an exasperated sigh um because that those events you know bad press always makes things better than good press i feel um and it's it just it doesn't help in people's understanding of of the mining industry when those kind of things happen and as a result the mining industry has actually become very insular we don't the industry doesn't really promote the good things that it does um you know there's a lot of companies working towards kind of the UN sustainability goals and all of the outreach and communi- community engagement that mining companies or mineral exploration companies do these days um sometimes originally for cynical reasons you know they have to hit targets but actually you know there is a lot of um companies being very proactive um and even just technology changes within the the mining industry you know i think people see those big trucks um in open pits and it's like oh you know that's su- such a negative impact on on the planet you know think of all the fuel use and everything more often than not they're electric and you know some of them generate the electricity when they're going down the hill carrying the load and then they use it to go back up the hill so um it's a lot greener the mining industry than it used to be and there's a lot of positive change um but yeah going back to your original question it's just that you know everything you touch if it hasn't been grown on a tree some someone has mined it from somewhere um and it's reminding people of that yeah and um my my research field actually intersects a bit with the, with this area and i know that for example if we want to if we want to change into you know battery energy being our main or renewable energy being our main source of of, uh, of energy we need to produce batteries and in order to do that for example metals like lithium and cobalt um we actually have prediction that they the the current supply that we know or the current um, reserves that we know wouldn't be sufficient to obtain that goal. No. Um, Yeah. How can geoscientists contribute to, you know, increasing the supply of these of these important metals? Yeah. So on that front of not reaching demand, uh, demand, not reaching supply, not reaching demand. It's the wrong way around. Um, Mm -hmm. There are predictions that by 2025, there will not be enough lithium produced to meet the demand for electric vehicles. That is four years time. <laughs> wow. I didn't, I didn't realize it was like, you know, so yeah, we're talking five to 10 years and that's just for lithium. You know, lithium demand is predicted to increase. I think it's like 500%, you know, within the next few decades. Um, wow. And so, yeah, I think quickly harking back to, people not understanding the role of of the mining industry they say oh well you know um why can't we recycle the elements and and put them in the new cars and it's like that is a great idea and that you know recycling will definitely have a place but a if you take a an electric vehicle each electric vehicle has 10 kilograms of lithium in it and 
we, you know, countries are talking about changing their entire fleet of cars from combustion engines to electric vehicles. A hundred million cars are made every year globally. And each of them have 10 kilograms of lithium. So that just gives you like a rough estimate of what we need just for lithium. And then if you look at copper, um, an electric vehicle, because it's electric, has four times the amount of copper than a regular vehicle. If, you know, if we recycled all of the vehicles tomorrow that are currently on you know, the planet, we would not have enough copper. Um, and so geoscientists can contribute to this imp- you know, supply by essentially finding these new deposits. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, that, that, that demand, that current production will not, uh, that current supply, sorry, will not meet the demand. Um, and so geologists need to come up with kind of modern exploration techniques, not just traditional mapping. You know, a lot of those easy deposits have been found. So we need those more non-invasive kind of low cost techniques to find deposits that haven't been found or indeed expand on our understanding of current deposits um and it is a race against time takes on average 10 years from finding a deposit to mining a deposit and so if you take the uk automotive industry for example by 2030 which is what nine years time all, all new vehicles in the UK will have to be electric. So if we need the, the lithium that we need for 2030 should have been found last year. Mm-hmm. That is the race against time that a lot of these supply chains have found themselves in. To put it in context, and it's, it's yeah, that's, that's why it's an exciting but also a challenging time, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, you mentioned that, uh, you know, pretty much all of the easy uh, deposits have been discovered already um, and it's true that the rate of deposit discovery has had a steady decline over the years. Um, do you know what is the reason for that and do you think that geoscience research can contribute uh, to you know increasing the discovery of new deposits? Basically? Yeah that's a really good question and, and actually I think I say the easy deposits, all the easy deposits have been found um that's just because you know the ones where they're they're at the surface and um you you know you you go and you find gold like scattered across the ground (laughs) you know it's probably those days are, are over um but the rate of deposit discovery hasn't declined because we're struggling to find them it's more a case of the balance of investment and risk um which is when geoscience starts to, you know, becomes industry and becomes a commercial um, uh, decision. You know, it's it's riskier for an investment company to invest in a junior mining exploration company who is looking for new deposits than it is to invest in a company that already has an advanced deposit that's either close to production or in production. And so... Mm-hmm. What you're finding or what you've had, from my understanding, for the most part, is that, you know, rather than new deposits coming online, a lot of them, a lot of the investment has just gone into making current production increase, which is great because it currently matches the demand. 
but we will, as we said, you know, we've talked about before, you, we will get to the point where we have to have these new deposits. And that's when the geoscientists come in because we need to develop and essentially sell our exploration techniques to say, look, this is um, a low-cost, non-invasive, non-destructive technique to find a new deposit that de-risks it. So please invest in this deposit Um, or, you know, into this exploration company, into this junior mining company. And that's when you see a lot of, research going into kind of passive seismic techniques or satellite ex, you know satellite data insar and all of that um and that's where the geoscientists kind of come in to our own mm-hmm. yeah one area that i'm particularly uh, passionate about is you know like um exploration has always had the use of uh, indicator minerals in finding mineral deposits. And it's usually as simple as, do you have mineral X of maybe color, you know, Y? If you do, then you might have a mineral deposit. And this is something that has happened for years and years and decades. I just really uh, think it's interesting if we just go from that starting point and we built on that. So what if we start looking into these uh, indicator minerals, but not only mineralogical characterization, but let's look into the chemistry and the, uh, the age and the isotopic systems. And that's when I think the um, high end and uh, you know, uh, top of the field academic research really meets the, the need of the industry. You know? Yeah, I agree. And um, I, I listened to a webinar the other day, which is um, kind of gave a good insight and probably pretty relevant for this is, you know, if you think of doing geochemistry sampling, like you said, for for um, indicator minerals, let's say around a copper deposit or something, can you go and do a bunch of soil sampling? Now, if you do that on an ICP AES, your detection limit is quite high. And so you may miss the subtle um, indicator mineral, you know, concentration changes of an indicator mineral. And, you know, even just a subtle change from a geochemist point of view and saying, let's, you know, do the investment, pay for the ICP MS analyses, your detection limit will be lower and you will see that variation and you you may find a deposit that would have otherwise been missed. Um, and yeah, it's, it's understanding kind of that's obviously just a geochemistry example of, you know, a geoscientist saying, use my expertise. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, this, this is worth and I think sometimes, again, it goes back to that investment and initial risk of, you know, that extra money. It may be too much for a junior mining companies to say, I can't afford that you know, extra money to get those additional analyses. But in the grand scheme of your final deposit and production, that's such an infinitesimally small amount of money. But it becomes a barrier at some point. Um, yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, it's the whole selling point of a publication I have where basically I measure the trace element content in, um, in a sedimentary pyrite in a distal hole. 
right? And I use that to detect the fluctuation of the, the metal content in the ocean. So basically, the pyrite, because it's formed from precipitation of seawater, it's going to record these uh, metal fluctuations. And, you know, if you have an increase in metal, which is uh, the same metal you find in a certain deposit, then that's, a, that's an interesting indication that, you know, this mineral activity is happening at that time, um, in, in, in that point in, of the geological history. And, and I always get this question where it's like, okay, but you're only telling me that there is, you know, fluctuation of metals, but how is that going to help me tell, you know, if the deposit is here or there? And the thing is, look, you already spent, how, how much money goes into, into collecting um, drill core, you know? Yeah, the, the core, coring. I mean, if you, in the UK, if you were going to drill like a one kilometer borehole, then you're probably talking like yeah. 300,000 pounds, yeah. 500, you know, three to 500,000 pounds to exactly. do the entire drilling with, you know, all of the planning and things that, you know, times and stuff, time and everything that comes around it. But I mean, if you do that in the oil and gas industry, I was talking to someone about it the other day. Um, you know, core extraction would be like a million pounds a meter at depth. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. So if you think about it, you know, you missed, um, had a problem in your geological model and you missed the, uh, the main mineralization uh, zone. Like usually these, uh, these drill cores, they, they just go to waste, you know. So why wouldn't we try to extract all the information we can, and that might help us, you know? Because if I don't see this fluctuation, I'm like, guys, there is like no evidence of no mineral activity here whatsoever, let's move on. But if I see something, because now I have, you know, like you said, improved detection limits that is showing me more uh, fluctuations in a smaller scale, then all of a sudden I can make, you know, a bit more uh, clear what the, what the actual uh, situation is. saw somewhere that you were also part of the uh, SCG student chapter at McGill University. Yeah, and uh, you organized field trips to Brazil and China to visit mine sites, right? Yeah, we went to uh, Brazil in 2016 and we went to China in 2017. And uh, the chapter also went to, when I was there, went to Colorado in 2015 and I think Mongolia in 2018. Um, so why was it important for the chapter um, that students visit mines in other countries? Um, I, I think it's a great way to just understand the mining industry uh, on a more global level. Um, you know, we didn't just go to uh, Brazil and China. We did run kind of like day trips or weekend trips to, to local mines, especially given that, you know, we were based in Quebec, um, you know, Val d'Or and various other mines are, you know, on a Canada scale, not that far away. Um, and no, it was just really interesting to see like an active, I'd never really been to a, a proper mine before. 
Um, and I'd always kind of been interested in the mining industry um, because, you know, I, as a geochemist, I, it is an applied way of using geochemistry. Um, and no, it was really cool to see like these massive iron mines or, you know, when we went to uh, an emerald mine in Brazil, which was really cool to see, um, learning how they, you know, they use lasers and um, like the cut, they can figure out the color of the emeralds and which ones are purer and which ones aren't. And there's like a little puffing machine on this conveyor belt that like, if it's a right color, it will like blow it into a different track and it goes off and does its thing. And I was like, this is so cool. Um, and China was a whole new, uh, new experience. Was, we mainly went to gold mines um, and the, the SEG kind of annual conference was being run in China the same year. So it was kind of like a dry run for them. Um, and yeah, it was just interesting to see the, the different approaches that different um, companies take and also just to learn more about the culture of different places. Um, and yeah, the SEG chapter, I should add, is like it's it's not just about going on a jolly for three weeks to Brazil, although <laughs> everyone d did have a great time. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time interacting with different mining companies, bringing speakers in. And actually, I think one of the most valuable things that I did was go to PDAC, which is the one of the big mining conferences on the East Coast. Um, and, you know, you know, sell yourself to different people, get different people's cards, see different speakers um, and learn more about, you know, potential jobs in the industry. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned um, that, you know, you, you got to see how things work differently in different countries um, and in different, you know, types of deposits and things like that. Um, and I, I think that that is one of the most valuable things about these trips. Obviously, whenever someone in your family learns that you're going to, a, you know, a foreign country or even an exotic country, they all, they all think like, oh, uh, this is this is great, you know. You're just going on a little vacation, but uh, but the the true value is that you learn different things and uh, you bring like fresh perspectives into your reality. So even you, as a you know, as a geologist working for a mining company now, you have all of this experience from the past of different things you saw that uh, might not be the way things work in the UK, let's say, and then all of a sudden, you know, something unusual happens and you have this uh, unorthodox way of dealing with it because of something you saw, you know, in a different reality, let's say. Yeah, 100%. And I think actually what really opened my mind, eyes when we went on these trips is... It, <laughs> I think oh, I can't speak for everyone who does a PhD, but I feel like I definitely, you know, one point of my PhD, you hit year three or year four and you're like, I have skills that are not applicable to anything outside of academia. No one is going to care that I know how to turn on and off an ICPMS and, and, and look at standard reference materials and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, going to these mines and we are distinctly remember going into a couple of, uh, different ones where they had an on-site laboratory and I was like oh wait these you know skills that I've had to learn during my PhD 
are actually really applicable to the mining industry. And that, again, just talking about that PDAC and going to that, to that and, and actually seeing what kind of skills that people were looking for. And you suddenly realise that, you know, your ability to critique information to a higher level than most people, because that's all we do as, you know, academics and researchers is justify everything down to like the last significant figure. Um, that's a really translatable skill, you know, especially going back to that whole risk and investment, you know, if you can prove to people that your data is valid and justify it to the ends of the earth, they're more likely to give you money and you're more likely to find a deposit. Um, and so, yeah, that really opened my eyes to actually this is not just a pipe dream. It, you know, I can come in and it can be of use. Mm-hmm. And uh, what about communication? Do you think that uh, going through a PhD has helped you become a better communicator somehow? Oh, 100%. Um, I think in, in, you know, in your PhD, you write a thesis at a bare minimum. Um, and more often than not now, we're writing papers um, that are being published in journals. But you're also then presenting at conferences. And you're presenting, potentially doing a lot of outreach, things like this, um, or, you know, going into schools. And you learn, whether you're conscious of it or not, of how to um, explain really, really complicated topics to people who don't do geology. And you try and explain your your thesis to, you know, your parents or your families when they're like, when are you going to be done with your research? Um, are you taking the school holidays off? And it's like, no, I'm a researcher and I do really complicated things all the time. Um, and yeah, you kind of subconsciously learn all of these skills and then you go into industry and you need to report, you know, write reports regularly. You need to present. I think I've done more presentations in the last year than I have um, at least in the last two years of my PhD. You know, I'm talking at conferences. I've done a lot more outreach. Um, you know, going into schools and explaining what, you know, why are we my, you know, looking for minerals in their back garden, things like that. Well, not their back gardens, but you know, Cornwall. Um, and all of these skills, I didn't realise the level to which I'd, like, learnt how to do them until I went into industry where I'm not surrounded by people who haven't done PhDs and postdocs. You know, mm-hmm. um, you have three or five years of experience of writing and experience of presenting, um, which is quite a significant amount of experience. Um, and you really don't under- realise that until you're um, in the industry where you've got people with kind of more varied backgrounds. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's, ve- it's very interesting to see your perspective in it. And um, something else that, uh, that I think um, kind of fits into our conversation here so I've said something in a previous episode uh, when I interviewed um, Michaela about stable isotopes. But anyway, in, in geosciences, um, I think that there is less of a clear division between academia and industry uh, than sometimes we make it to be. Um, in reality, I think we all do research in, in geology and geosciences, and we can all become experts on something through continued education, you know, via academia or via the research that we do at our jobs. 
and I really, really enjoyed listening to your perspective because I think that you gave us a clear example of how connected all of us geoscientists really are. And, uh, you know, you have the experience of both sides and you found strength from one that translates into the other, I think. Yeah, 100%. And I do think that my current role is kind of more similar to academia than I ever thought it was going to be. Um, in the sense of, you know, I am in exploration. So by definition, we're trying to find things that currently not don't exist, but like there's no industry standard for finding waters in structures. Um, and so, you know, I do have to read a lot of papers and, and I do spend quite a bit of time looking at spreadsheets and just making graphs and trying to figure out the relationships between these you know these different elements in these waters and understanding where they're coming from and um and so there is that kind of desk study approach in exploration yeah it, there is a lot that translates understanding the subsurface which will help us find those deposits longer term is where that industry academia um relationship really comes into play you know if we can fund a postdoc or if we can provide samples to an MSc student, that's really beneficial to us, and it's also beneficial to them. You know, I'm currently supervising two, you know, an undergraduate student and a master's student. We've got four or five master's students lined up um, over the next um, four or five months. I've got at least like seven or eight, or probably like a dozen university contacts where we're trying to push project projects on various work streams um and that's the approach that we've we've taken because it um it helps us do the um the more research side of the exploration mm -hmm. whilst then i can focus on the actual prospectivity of where we're going to drill um i'm all for collaborations let's put it that way yeah good good to hear that collaboration is like a one of the most important things we can do. <laughs> so for our next segment, uh, we'd like to ask always the same three questions at the end of every episode. Uh, these are questions which are a bit more personal and they are designed to make each guest a bit more familiar to the listener. Uh, they, also, they also allow us to compare experiences and opinions across all of the geoscience research fields. And the first question is, how did you first decide to become a geologist? I, at no point did I say I want to be a geologist. Um, at school, I was very much like, I like volcanoes in geography and I like the sciences. What you know, we do A levels when you're 17, 18. Like, what A levels should I be doing? And I went and did like maths and physics and chemistry and geography. And then it got to choosing a university degree. And I was like, what do I like? Well, I like the sciences and I like volcanoes and I like earthquakes. So, literally, just looked up courses that did that. And I was like, oh, there's this thing called earth sciences. Because I looked at the course titles and obviously geology came up. And I was like, I don't want to do geology, I don't like rocks. And so I, you know, I did earth sciences. That I went to Oxford, um, somehow managed to get in there, still waiting for the, um, this was a mistake letter, um, seven years later. Um, and yeah, I did that course because it was really, really broad. 
like I, I, I've never really considered myself a geologist. I consider myself a geoscientist um, because I always, I like learning about the physics and things and the chemistry that, you know, create these rocks and create these processes. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's, the, that's me more than a, a geologist. And, and that's literally the approach I've taken throughout my career to date of, you know, I finished my earth science degree and was like, I liked my master's project and I liked volcanoes and I don't want to get a real job. And I started applying for PhDs um, and, you know, found a PhD um, somehow. My, well, I panic applied to a PhD in a foreign country in Canada and then I got it. And then I got on a plane, uh, landed in North America for the first time that I'd ever been to North America. And I was like, well, now I live here for four years. Um, so a lot of this kind of... Um, aimless wandering on trying to find something that I enjoy doing. Yeah, it's funny because I've been asking this question, how many episodes did we record? Maybe like 12. And I've, all, every time I've asked, how did people decide to become geologists? And I just realized that, you know, the, the aim of our show is to interview geoscientists, not geologists. So from now on, I'm going to change my question to how did you first decide to become a geoscientist? So thank you for that. <laughs> No worries. Um, so question number two is, what are some of the specifics of the research that you are conducting at present? And you don't have to get too specific because, you know, I know that's a problem in the industry. <laughs> yeah, NDAs and all of that. Um, yeah, so um, I'm an exploration geochemist. Um, and so my kind of part of my day job is to understand um, the chemistry of the waters that we're looking at so cornish lithium um we have two exploration streams we have um exploration into hard rock mineralization so lithium in cornwall is hosted in these mica minerals found within the granite but we also have a geothermal water exploration stream which is kind of my day job and that's where we're interested in the lithium that is enriched within waters that are circulating within the ground so what you have is, uh, we talked about batholiths earlier, but, you know, a massive granitic batholith that extends the entire county, so a couple hundred kilometres, um, some of which outcrops at the surface, but for the most part is not. Um, Cornwall has also been crushed and extended and crushed and extended over, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of years. And so you have these huge st structures and faults that are permeable that, that um, overlay the county or are found within the county and you have waters within them. So my day job is to understand how you know, the chemistry of those waters, why is the lithium enriched, what signatures in waters and soils and sediments can we look for to find areas that we should mine to, or should drill into these structures. Um, but I also actually have found myself, especially in the last four months, actually on more of the engineering side which is completely different to anything i've done before you know i haven't even worked on waters let alone you know a chemist a chemical engineering trying to work out how to get the lithium out and so i work a lot with different um engineering firms and and so on to understand how you can extract lithium from geothermal waters how can we do that um in a responsible but also you know with a low operating cost um and as i said yeah that's you know i'm not um 
an engineer in any way, but actually my, you know, talking back to transferable skills, I did um, kind of lead radium um, and polonium analyses in my PhD and did a lot of column chemistry work. And, you know, I now talk to companies who are using absorption techniques and and basically industrial scale resin to extract these elements and i'm like oh no i do understand because that's how i got the strontium out of my rocks and that's how i got my radium out of my rocks just on a different scale so um yeah they're the two main things i find myself doing a lot at the moment cool um what do you enjoy doing when you are not geosciencing when i'm not geosciencing um i mean you can't see the room that I'm in at the moment, but there's like two bikes and there's four or five sets of wheels um, just sitting around the place. So I do a lot of cycling um, and yeah, just a lot of sport. And I do live in Cornwall, which is, um, you know, the coast that basically all coastline. Um, so hiking and walking and everything is um, kind of the go to down here. And I do a lot of photography as a result. You know, I think a lot of geologists. We like being in the outdoors and we get, you know, we like being um, on top of a hill looking, you know, where, you know, where we see the high point, everyone's like, I want to go stand on top of that and I want to take my camera and I want to take a photo. So I definitely fall into that category of, of out, outdoorsy geologists. Uh, so thank you for chatting with us today, Rebecca. Uh, I hope our listeners leave this episode today thinking about all of the positive impact that geoscientists can have on the world, even in areas that you might not expect such positive impact to be possible, like mineral exploration. So thank you. Cheers. Thanks so much. We have added to the show notes ways you can contact Rebecca and also a link to her post on the GMPB blog from the European Geoscience Union. Uh, I really love this chat because Rebecca had some views on exploration that are very, very similar to mine. I hope that you liked it too. Nice Chats is part of the Geology Podcast Network and it is sponsored by Traveling Geologists. Follow Traveling Geologists on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologist.com, but also wherever you get your podcast, for example, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. In two weeks, we'll release the next episode of the Rebecca Trilogy Saga, and it is gonna shake your foundations. It's time to say goodbye now, which means it's time for our famous sign-off. I always make a geology or geoscience pun, and look, if you don't like puns, well, my sediments.